Hello, my name's Debbie Evans. I'm the nursing correspondent for UK Column. And today I am bringing you an exclusive interview from a very brave nurse north of the border in Scotland. I'm going to give a quick introduction because she has so many qualifications that I'm just going to run through them very quickly. But today we're going to welcome Fran Adamson. And I've had to write her qualifications down because there are so many of them. So Fran is a BSc registered general nurse. She's specialised in theatre. She's been a nurse educator. She's been a controlled drug inspector. And that took her into primary care. And then she was working with prisons, community pharmacists and GPs. She's been a heart failure specialist nurse and she's been writing protocols for vaccines and is now a medicines management specialist nurse. And she's still working in the NHS and we are extremely privileged and humbled to have her with us because she's going to be giving a lot of detail into what is going on north of the border. And we've actually, again, had to write the points down because there are so many points, we don't want to miss anything out. So without further ado, I want to welcome Fran and thank you so much for joining us today. And first of all, ask, how are you? Hi, Debbie. Um, thanks for asking. I'm okay. I'm, I'm actually quite good. Um, I'm good about my decision to speak out about what's happening with the NHS because I feel that um, people need to know. I can imagine that it's been incredibly difficult for you because I know that you've, like many nurses, and, and we're seeing more and more come forward, thank goodness. So that's why we're incredibly grateful to you. But you've been struggling really to sleep at night, haven't you, with what you've seen. So when all of this started, Fran, you know, all through your training, everything that you've been taught, and I'm a nurse and you're a nurse, so we're coming from the same page very much on this. What alerted you to things that were going wrong? What really was were the red flags that you saw? Uh, overall in the NHS, well, there's quite a few. I suppose probably I would say for the last eight, nine years of my career, I've started to notice things that just weren't right. So for example, when I was working as a heart failure specialist nurse in the community, that gave me insight into GP practices and how they're run, which previously, having worked in the hospital, I, I wasn't aware of. And I never thought for one minute that GPs in this country were akin to those in America where they essentially could be bought and sold. And what I mean by that is I wasn't aware of the pharmaceutical industry's influence on GP prescribing. Um, and I certainly became very aware of that when I was working as a heart failure specialist nurse. There were times when I would request medicines for patients that were the best medicines for that patient, but my requests were declined and a similar type of medicine was prescribed. And the only rationale behind that was that that's the one that the GP normally uses because that's the drug company that bought the DFibs last year, um, just as an example. So there were issues in respect to that in terms of medicines prescribing that I noticed quite early on, about sort of eight, nine years ago. Um, when I worked in research, I became quite concerned around just what we base our evidence-based medicine on in terms of clinical trials. Um, I worked on clinical trials. I got to learn and understand about trial protocols, how they're designed and developed, and how trials are run. And I have to say it was a huge learning curve. Um, and it was a massive insight into the fact that there are a lot of negative trials that are done in medicines management trials that are never published, that the, the general public never know about. And essentially, there's an ethos of just keep doing it until you get the right one, until you get a positive trial. And some medicines, therefore, can actually have in excess of eight or nine negative trials before they get the one positive trial. And that's what they go with. Um, so just learning all about research and actually looking into it um, and about peer review and understanding how, again, you look behind the biases in some of the big journals and who sits on the boards. Um, it's just it's just hugely eye-opening. And then latterly in the role that I'm in now, uh, as you mentioned, um, I've been working with vaccinations and writing vaccination, prescribing documents essentially for the last sort of six, seven years. Um, 
When it came to the whole COVID situation, I, I've never known anything like it. Because I've got familiarity about how vaccines are developed and brought to market, and literally, it's a 10-year process. Um, you know, with the exception of an Ebola vaccine that, that came five years, but that was expedited. There was never anything like we've seen with COVID. Um, and that just, that raised a massive red flag for me. Um, just, yeah, too quick, way too quick. Of course, we've got this 100-day mission now where, as you rightly said, vaccines were 10 years, maybe sometimes 15 years in development before they were approved. And then all of a sudden now we're looking at delivery from to 100, from 100 days from a declaration of need to, to arm. Um, completely insane. And, you know, let's just stay on vaccines for a minute because, you know, I'm I'm of a generation where... Well, I'm getting older, let's face it, and I haven't got young children. So I'm not aware of the childhood immunization schedule at the moment completely. And I think many people watching, you know, they hear about the child immunization schedule and they take their children off for the immunizations, but they're not quite aware of what their children are receiving. What are you seeing at the moment? Because I know that you're seeing some things that are, are concerning you a lot with regards to childhood immunizations particularly yeah definitely um i'll just say that for a start when i came into this role um i was taken to a scottish government level meeting about vaccination program planning for scotland um which i went to with a public health consultant and at the time during the meeting i heard one of the scottish government executives mentioned that the flu vaccination program for children that had not long begun was simply to reduce the amount of um, elderly patients going in at hospitals during the winter because of flu. And I didn't think I'd heard them correctly because I thought that can't be right. They're instigating a vaccine for kids solely just to stop the NHS becoming overwhelmed. That doesn't seem right. So I asked that question on the way home. I said, did I hear correctly? Is it the case that the flu vaccine has come about for kids purely out of the fact that we're trying to keep old people out of hospital because kids are super spreaders of germs, they sneeze, they call, you know. Um, and the consultant didn't directly answer my question, but she did ask, did I have children? And I said, I did. And she said, don't ever get them vaccinated for flu. They don't require it. They need their own immunity to be built up by exposure to viruses. Um, and from that point on, that was a huge concern because then you've got the knowledge that there's something happening that's not necessarily for the benefit of the child. It's the risk benefit. Where is it? You know, it's in particular for that vaccine, it was for some other purpose, not to protect the child, other than those who are in an exceptionally high risk category. Um, and then over the years that I've worked with vaccines, you know, initially children would get what's called a forum one. Um, so you're getting four vaccines in one shot. And they would get that three times during their infant schedule. And over the years, that they went to a five in one. And now it's a six in one, what we call a hexavalent vaccine. And what that means is that one needle that goes into the child actually has five vaccines within it. Um, and now there's a new proposal by the GCVI starting um, as of next year because there are issues with the supply of a vaccine or Hibmen C, which is Hemophilus Influenza B, and Meningitis C, um, that the children will still need to get the Hib B shot. And the only vaccine that's available that has that in it is the Hexavalent, the six in one I described. So there's now a move to initiate another round of the six in one for the infant program, just so we can get that one vaccine. So they're now going to receive five that they don't necessarily need just to get that one vaccine. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, I don't think parents really appreciate the fact they see two needles going in, and especially when it's MMR as well. I mean, that's three, that's three things in one as well. I don't think they fully appreciate just the number and quantity of viruses that their children are being exposed to, whether that's inactivated or active or live. So. Dan, let's just... For our viewers and listeners, and actually for me as well, because, you know, how many of us are up to date? How many of us actually do know what our children are going to get in their arms? Let's just explain to viewers and listeners what um, a HIB and a HEXA, and, and I find that 
the whole word hexa, hex, um, extremely disturbing anyway. But let's just talk about what's in that. So in the hip, mm -hmm. am I correct in thinking that this covers for diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, polio, hepatitis B, and haemophilus influenza? That's the sixth and one. That's the hexavalent one that covers that. The hip men C was just haemophilus influenza B and meningitis C, and it's to be discontinued. But the hexavalent contains all of those viruses, vaccines that you mentioned, yes. So, sorry. So, yes. So, let me just get that absolutely right. One with diphtheria, pertussis, tetanus, polio, hep B, and haemophilus influenza is the hexa six in one. So what we're saying then is when parents go for this hexa or take their children for this hexa, they have no clue that that needle is containing six vaccines. Is that what we're saying here? I would suspect that that's the case um, quite frequently. Now, I have um, a friend who works as an immunisation nurse in Grand Pain and I have spoken to her she's um, very studious and makes sure that she does explain fully to the mothers, usually it's the mothers, um, exactly what's in the vaccine that the child's receiving. However, I'm not convinced that that's across the piece. Um, and I know people who have taken their kids for vaccines and when I then speak to them afterwards and say, oh, how are they doing? And it's crazy, isn't it, that they're getting six in one and then plus, you know, they're getting their, their main B shot at the same time. And they're like, what do you mean six in one? And I'll say, well, you know, it's easier for us to support you, tetanus, it be, and the fellow influenza B, and they'll say, no, we've only got one shot. And I'll say, but it contains six vaccines, essentially one shot. Uh, never heard anything about that, didn't know that. So, you know, anecdotally, I've, I know that people are carrying out good practice and ensuring that they're trying to gain informed consent. But also, I know from experience of people up here taking their kids for vaccinations, that that's not always explained. And let's talk briefly about the MMR um, before we go on to talk about the Gardasil uh, or the Gardasil 9, um, because I know that we need to highlight that. Am I right in thinking that the MMR, do children get two shots now before they're 18 months old, was it, that I remember you saying when we spoke previously? So not currently they get two shots, but the first shot is um, the first shot is at one year, and then their second shot is three years, four months on average. But what the GCVI are also looking to do as of next year is to bring their second shot of MMR forward, so they'll get it at 18 months. So it's, it is a two-shot schedule. But at the minute, it's quite spaced out. Um, but the proposal is to bring it so that it's closer together and they're getting that second immunisation in the 18 months. And this is what's so important, I think, that we need to highlight to parents because clearly we're not going to hear this on the mainstream media. We're not going to get an announcement um, from the JCVI um, on the BBC News, for example. So it's really important, I think, the message to parents with regards to um, in inverted commas vaccinations per se because nobody seems to quite know who is getting what and when. Let's just move on um, to the Gardasil and the Gardasil 9 vaccine which is the HPV. Explain to us a little bit about the changes that have come about and what you're seeing with Gardasil with regards to children because of course this is being given to boys now as well as girls isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so initially Gardasil um, started in 2016, I think. Um, the first vaccine contained four protein strains from the human papillomavirus. The Gardasil 9 contains nine proteins from the human papillomavirus. But uh, on top of that, additionally, the Gardasil 9 contains double the amount of aluminium adjuvant as well. Um, and, you know, You'll know yourself, Debbie, there have been queries raised over the years in regards to aluminium contained within vaccination and its ability to cross the blood-brain barrier. So it was a bit of a concern to see that the adjuvant had doubled, the aluminium had doubled. But when you understand how the vaccination is actually created, then you understand why they need more aluminium. So traditional vaccines that people might be familiar with, 
such as the flu vaccine or the shingles vaccine. They are, um, you take a little bit of the vaccine that's either alive or inactivated, but it's still a little bit of vaccine. And they culture that in chicken eggs and then they create the vaccine from that. The way that these new vaccines are made are actually not too dissimilar in a way to the COVID gene therapies, um, is that they don't take any viral material at all. What they do is they take a protein that appears on the surface of the virus and they synthesize that protein using recumbent DNA. So they essentially create it the same way that proteins were created for the COVID vaccines. And then they then take that protein and it's that that's put into the vaccine. So Gardasil 9 contains nine of these proteins. Now, the proteins are not as stable to use in vaccinations as live virus are. Um, so they need the aluminium adjuvant in order to help create stability, as well as another adjuvant called polysorbate 80. So these vaccines are sort of purely manufactured and they contain no uh, virus material at all. Wow. And you just mentioned actually polysorbate 80 um, as being included in this Gardasil 9. And of course, we must remember that polysorbate 80 is also, was in, also included in the AstraZeneca COVID-19. So that makes complete sense, um, what you're saying with regards to these, in inverted commas, vaccines. But I think the big message for parents, um, well, for everybody really, is that anything that's coming down the line now, we need to be extra specially vigilant because actually people don't know a, what they're getting or their children are getting and B, what kind of effect it's going to have. Let's come full circle then, Fran, and look at the COVID-19 in, um, I call it a gene technology. Um, for viewers and listeners that are newer to UK Column, you would still know it as a, a vaccine. It's been called a vaccine. Have you spoken to your colleagues about your fears, your worries, your concerns, and what kind of reaction have you had? Because, I mean, you've been working with, you know, senior nurses, senior doctors. Um, how have they reacted to you speaking out? Because I know you have been doing for many months. So initially, um, when the alarm bells were ringing about the so-called vaccine, I also too term it a gene therapy because it does not meet the definition of a vaccine at all, even though they went and conveniently changed it in the Cambridge Dictionary. Um, it's not a vaccine. It, it termed it would be a gene therapy. Um, and when I first started to really research into it and look into it before the vaccinations were launched, this would have been about October 2020, um, I had kind of said to friends and colleagues who were nurses that I was concerned about that you know, the speed of the vaccine development, that the companies that were bringing the vaccines forward, BioNTech and Moderna, had never brought any medicine to fruition in terms of getting anything approved previously. You know, completely novice in the whole arena of medicines and vaccines, and that that was a concern. Um, and I remember initially speaking to a senior nurse manager um, about it and trying to open discussion, and they just you know, kind of, they didn't take it on. They sort of said, well, you know, the government wouldn't be saying all this, you know, they wouldn't be doing all this if it wasn't necessary and they hadn't done the research. Um, so I ended up, I, I really did take a long time to look into it and I developed a document um, whereby I pulled sources like Mike Eden, who had started speaking out about it at that time as well, and embedded videos from him and Peter Hotez in America. And I detailed all about how the immune system works, all about how the vaccines work, how these vaccines were you know different, um, and I sent that around everybody I knew. Um, I sent it around all family and friends. I sent it to, well, I, I sent it to two colleagues that you know I was quite close to, um, and nobody really paid much attention. Um, when the vaccinations were given their emergency use authorization, again that was unprecedented. That hadn't happened before. Um, I started to become more vocal about it, realizing that I was going to have to be involved in writing or you know processing the um, Scottish government issued prescribing documentation for them. And I started to say that informed consent, looking at the documents, didn't really seem to be taken properly because there was no mention that they had to tell the participants that were taking part in the clinical trial. 
and have worked in research on clinical trials, it's absolutely imperative that individuals that are about to receive a medicine that's in trial are informed that it's trial. You know, they need to know that. And that just was not being discussed at all. And when I raised the issue at a meeting, saying that I felt that there should be an additional patient information leaflet that detailed the fact that they were taking part in a clinical trial, and also that there was no safety data in regards to fertility or pregnancy um, or breastfeeding, and that that should be highlighted as well. Um, I was essentially just told, no, we've got all the paperwork, we don't need, it's not required, basically. Um, by the time it came to, I think it was March or April 2021, I had gone to the UK column anonymously, spoke to Brian Gerrish because I was so concerned about what I was seeing and that nobody was listening. And actually by that time, I had kind of been termed the sort of tinfoil hat and um, yeah, whatever, you know, whenever I would start speaking about it, people would roll their eyes. Um, and by the time May came around and it was looking that they were going to start a childhood programme for COVID vaccination, I absolutely knew that regardless of what small part it might say that I would play in it, I couldn't, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep. I, I just, you know, I was absolutely beside myself at the thought, the fact that they were going to give these gene therapies to kids. Um, and so I went to my line manager to tend my resignation. Um, after much discussion, um, they said, okay, fine, we'll take away everything that's COVID from you. You no longer have to be involved at all. You won't look at anything, you won't write anything, you just won't be involved. Well, you stay. And I said, yeah, okay. Um, but to be honest, Debbie, as time's gone on since then to now, I've just become more and more disillusioned with what I see in the NHS and the way that the pharmaceutical industrial complex drives everything now that goes through the, the NHS, it's just so concerning that I just no longer can remain in post because I just feel like working for the NHS currently, my soul has been sucked out daily. It's just, I just don't want to do it anymore. So, so the reaction from my colleagues was, was never great. I mean, my line manager listened to what I had to say. At one point, I was offered an audience with the executive um, at my sort of level in pharmacy to discuss my concerns. But having been previously dismissed, I didn't feel that, that there was any point because I guess just kept getting told that Scottish Government Francis, you know, it's it's the Scottish Government, we just get on with it and get it done because it's what needs to be done. Everybody's doing it. You know, so it was like a fait accompli. There was no no challenge in it. Um, because the Scottish Government had said so, basically. So your hands were completely tied and you felt as though you, I mean, I don't even want to think about how you must have thought and, and how you must have felt witnessing and watching this and, and feeling completely helpless. But I know that you've said that you're not alone. And I mean, currently you're working through your resignation. So you're, you're still technically working for um, NHS Scotland. But you've also told me um, on a couple of occasions now uh, the exodus of highly experienced, qualified, highly qualified staff that are just leaving the NHS in droves, um, including, I think, an, an intensive care was it that there was staff that had been there for years, and all of a sudden now they seem to have all gone. Yeah, so there definitely is. I mean, from the mid-2020 up until now, the amount of senior nurses, so nurses that had been around for a long time, but weren't quite at retirement age, who took early retirement, was, was just phenomenal. You know, it's, at one point, it kind of seemed like everybody I was speaking to was saying, oh, by the way, just to let you know I'm retiring, it's like, well, not you as well. <laughs> um, so many decided to go early. Um, and in terms of ITU, there was five nurses that had left the IT department over that period as well. But there were countless other nurses from other areas left as well. Some of the nurses were redeployed to the vaccination centres from their substantive posts. They left also because they didn't want to be involved, they didn't want to do that job. Um, GPs, we have a big issue with GPs leaving within our health board area as well. Um, some surgeries are having to be amalgamated because there's not enough GPs to run them and brought under the NHS. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, it's been a bit of a, an exodus. And a lot of people that I speak to now that realise that I'm, I've resigned and that I'm going to say, 
you know, the sentiment is, oh, God, I wish I could go as well. I hate it. You know, and when I say to them, well, why don't you? To be honest, David, the vast majority of people are in financial circumstances that are such that they just they can't. They feel that they just cannot go. Um, they're kind of rock in a hard place, you know, and, and my heart goes out to them because, you know, whilst I'm not exactly rich and I don't have a job to go to, um, you know, my husband is happy to support me in leaving because he sees what the last sort of 18 months have done in terms of my health um, and my wider family as well are helping to support us and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll make ends meet with his job. But there are a lot of people left currently in the NHS who are good people who, you know, some have tried, like I have, with um, their life management to speak out and being unsuccessful, and they're essentially stuck. They can't, they can't leave because they just can't afford to. They'll lose their homes and what happens to their children. You know, so it's, but it's fairly dire. I mean, for staff in, in our area, it's exceptionally dire at the minute. And you know, that leads on to the question, Fran. If so many highly qualified, highly experienced nurses, doctors. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, paramedics, ODAs, I mean, right across the whole spectrum. Who are these people being replaced with? Because we're hearing stories of noctors who are, they're not qualified doctors. They're maybe graduates of, of science degrees with a bolt-on for a couple of years to do a bit of medicine. Associate physicians, we're hearing all of these different terms. Who who are we seeing? I mean, are we seeing a replacement of like by, with like, experience with experience, or are we seeing l underqualified or maybe no qualified staff replacing them? So in terms of the experience that's been lost to the NHS over the last 18 months, it, is not, it has not been replaced and it, it just cannot be replaced there. I mean, you can't replace that experience. What I know of happened when I mean, my mum works in the NHS as well on a different health board in Scotland and in her health board they offered um, many of the senior nurses and senior auxiliaries, the healthcare support workers, to take early retirement on the promise that if they did they would get two days back part-time. On mass a lot of them took it because of the situation obviously with COVID many many nurses were tired and weary and wanted to go so a lot of them jumped at it and then the health board turned around and said, oh, really sorry, but we don't have the two days to give you. So they basically just got rid of all of those nurses and auxiliaries. And what came in to replace them was auxiliaries that were cheaper and nurses that were cheaper. Because the vast majority of these senior nurses that left were obviously at the top of their abandon in the NHS and had full pay entitlement for sick leave and things like that. So quite expensive, I suppose. And what's replaced them is you know, the bottom end of the spectrum the newly qualified nurses who don't qualify for their full sick pay. Um, and to be honest, Debbie, are, are not likely to question things that they feel maybe aren't right or things that they see are wrong. These older nurses and auxiliaries were advocates for their patients. You know, they were trained the way that we were. Um, and they spoke up for their patients and they were more likely to challenge anything that they saw or felt, you know, was untoward. But, you know, just from speaking to my mum, because my mum went back, and my mum was one of the ones that fought with the union that got her two days. Um, and she's back in amongst it. And, you know, she reports, similar to friends up here who are reporting, that wards have been staffed by single nurses because, you know, it's so dire for staff. So you've potentially got a 30-bed ward to one nurse. Um, you know, gone are the days of two nurses doing drug rounds in terms of safety. You know, my own father, when he was in hospital, um, which is the one my mum works in, he was actually given the medicines for the gentleman in the bed next to him twice. And twice he had to say, and it's only because my dad has an awareness of the colour of tablets and shape of tablets that he takes, that he thought something was wrong. And twice he had been given the wrong medicines. And it's just, and the other issue with that is when there's a complaint, and I obviously complain, um, but there's, there's just not the... I don't even know what to say, but I mean, if it had been me and I'd made a medicines error, I don't think I'd have slept for weeks, you know. It was such a harrowing thing to be involved in if there had been a medication error, but nowadays it's just so flippant. It's just like, yeah, well, you didn't, you know, you didn't take them. <laughs> so, 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 yeah. I mean, this is, danger, this is dangerous practice. And, I mean, you and I, you know, we've had, we've had a few conversations now and we're old school trained nurses and there are going to be 
thousands of old school trained nurses watching this interview right now who will remember doing drug assessments, who will remember walking around the, the ward, two nurses hanging hold of the trolley. You'd never leave the trolley, uh, the drug trolley in the middle of the ward. You would always have two nurses. You would always check the patient's name band. You would always, it would be an opportunity to speak to the patient, to have actual one-to-one -one contact with them, see how they were. Did they need anything? Um, how were they feeling? We used to know the drugs we were giving, the side effects to expect. We, we would often have to perform investigations or observations before we were giving the drugs. For example, digoxin, where we would have to take a pulse before we would give a drug. So to hear that we've got inexperienced people that are just dishing out medicines willy-nilly, not knowing what they are, is terrifying but then that leads us on fran again to what you're witnessing in scotland in the nhs and i mean you told me a horrific story well you've told me quite a few actually but let's start off with what i've called paramedic corridor tell us about paramedic corridor so in march of this year the scottish ambulance service developed a document that was called cohorting which is what you call corridoring. Um, and basically what it meant was that when the um, accident emergencies were so full that they couldn't get anybody through um, and the hospital was backed up so they couldn't move out of the knee, that there would be this policy in place that a paramedic could basically look after designated patients in a designated area of the hospital until such times as they could get them into the knee. But what that transpires to, certainly in my area currently, is that we have paramedics looking after, you know, up to two patients at a time in the corridors outside of uni because there isn't anywhere else for them to go. Um, the fact that the hospital has been, you know, full to capacity for the last sort of nearly two months now, people just don't seem to be questioning that. And again, I've raised this with colleagues. I've said, you know, why are we so busy? It doesn't make any sense. And it's you know, we're not busy in terms of, you know, sort of flu symptoms and things appearing. We're busy in terms of young people having heart attacks, young people having strokes. I mean, when I trained as a nurse, I remember a placement in ITU with a really senior ITU consultant saying to me, you know, we nurse say, come and see this, come and, come and learn about this man. And it was an unfortunate gentleman at the age of 47 that had a heart attack. And that was a rarity. He was young. You know, and at the time, the consultant said, you know, you should be paying attention to this because we don't see, we don't see much of this. We don't see young men like this having heart attacks. Whereas now it's just a norm. It seems to be that, you know, a and is absolutely overloaded with young people who are having heart attacks, strokes, brain hemorrhages. You know, and it's when you ask colleagues, why is this? This is not, this is not right. Nobody wants to acknowledge it. All that I get is, well, you know, we just didn't get the let up that we normally get over the summer, you know. And you know, so, yeah, the paramedics are now having to, to look after the patients in the corridors because there isn't the room for them in the And there's not the staff. I mean, the health board put out a call by email for anybody willing to go and work to help out because they were so stretched for staff. It's just, it's beyond the joke. And no. it's not just my hospital. It's right across Scotland, all of this is happening, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we've been talking about what, what's been happening in England a lot. Um, and we're now seeing that things are particularly, particularly grim in Scotland. And, you know, I know, Fran, that you are a very, very highly experienced, qualified cardiac specialist nurse. And you, you were involved, weren't you, in, in kind of setting up a cardiac unit with other nurses and the NHS. Um, well, tell us the story about the cardiac unit, Fran. Is this the Heart Failure Specialist Nurse Service? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so NHS Grampian had a Heart Failure Nursing Specialist Service um, and I was lucky enough to get a job doing that, but the funding for it was always precarious. It was sort of temporary funding that kept getting extended. Um, and over the period of time that myself and my colleagues were in the role, we really expanded the service to the point that we felt it was working, and so did the GPs, felt the service was working really well. It was really serving the patients. 
the whole sort of conception behind it was to keep the patients out of hospital. But for us, it was also about ensuring that heart failure patients had a good death. Because heart failure patients, unlike cancer patients, didn't get the same input in terms of their end-of-life care. But they still suffered terribly towards the end of their life. Um, and, you know, pain and having a good death were priorities for that type of patient too. So we developed lots of paperwork and protocols. Um, we started working in conjunction with the Marie Curie nurses as well to get them involved with our patients. And it all went really well and it all worked super well. Um, it was a really rewarding job. I loved it. It was my absolute favourite nursing post of all that I've had, you know, because you really felt like you were making a difference to these patients. And then predictably in the NHS, the funding ran out. And when the funding ran out, at the point it ran out, we had all been put through additional university level training, master's degree level university training to obtain a specialist heart failure qualification. We had all been put through our non-medical prescribing qualification, so we were now independent prescribers with our own prescription pads. And predictably, again, for the NHS, even though the funding had run out, we had to apply for our jobs back. So we all had to interview to get our posts back, bar one nurse, because of the way she was contracted, she could stay in post and didn't have to interview. And at the time, it probably would have seemed like that's a bit of a no-brainer, they're going to get their jobs back. However, the service was taken over by a different senior manager just before um, we went to interview for our jobs. That senior manager appointed a friend of hers to become the team leader for the Heart Failure Nursing Service. And in turn, when we interviewed, you know, some of us didn't get our jobs back. And I was one of those ones that didn't get my job back. Um, and as it transpired, two bridesmaids of that team leader got two of those jobs and they had no heart failure qualification, they were not no medical prescribers, but they were being the bridesmaids of the team leader. Um, obviously, that then prompted us to take a grievance against um, the NHS because it was nepotism. You know, it wasn't right for the patients. The GPs were up in arms. I had GPs write letters. I had 56 letters of support from clinical staff around reinstating the actual qualified heart failure nurses to the room. And we went so far through the grievance process and a unison was my union at the time that were handling the case. And I will never forget when it didn't seem to be going too well and I, I queried this for unison. I said, look, what's the problem? And they said, well, you don't want the job, do you? Because by this time, I really didn't want to work for these people. Um, they had a, a completely different idea about what they wanted to do with the service that was more akin to suiting them than suiting the patients. And I did not want to get involved in that. So no, I didn't want the job back. And when I said this to the union representative, I said, well, no, I don't want the job back and explained why. She said, well, you know what, we're just going to leave it then. And I said, sorry, what do you mean you're just going to leave it? It's not the point. I might not want the job back, but it's not the point of what's actually happened here is a complete injustice for those patients. Why aren't you fighting my corner? Why aren't you going to do anything about this? And I was told, well, you know, we do deals. I'm sorry, we do deals. And she said, oh, yeah, Unison does deals with the health board. You know, it's, that's how it goes. And, you know, if there's a case that can be won and a, a, an individual get their job back, then they'll go ahead with that one now that you're dropping yours and that's us done them a favour. And I tell you, Debbie, from that point on, I've never paid a Unison fee again. You know, I was, I was completely, completely disgusted. And I still to this day think about those patients and how badly served they were by that and how nothing was ever done about it. So the unions are, it would appear, corrupt because they're meant to be there to protect you. Clearly they didn't. Um, and, you know, a few minutes ago, you referred to something that I feel that we have to come back to because of all people, we need specialist cardiac nurses right now because we seem to be normalizing, you know, you, you, you were saying about the 47 year old gentleman, but we seem to be normalizing adolescents, children now collapsing with, with heart disease, myocarditis, some of them needing heart transplants or will need heart transplants later on in their lives. Um, some who, who will die and have died. I mean, I have never seen anything like this ever before. Um, youngsters collapsing on football pitches, uh, doing sport in school. I mean, 
I, I'm going to ask you your thoughts. I mean, I can, I, I think I, I probably know what you're going to say, but have you or any of your colleagues ever seen anything like this before? And how are your colleagues not, not bringing this to people's attention? They must be seeing what we're seeing, Fran. I've never seen anything like it. Um, it's it's so it's so obvious because it's just so rare. Myocarditis, endocarditis, and kids—it's really rare. Heart attacks in young people, again, exceptionally, or strokes, a lot of strokes in, in young people, um, even adolescents. It's it's heartbreaking to be honest with you. In terms of my colleagues, I actually don't have that many friends that are nurses left that are working clinically. And predominantly, I'm based in pharmacy, so my colleagues tend to be pharmacists, not nurses. At, you know, my absolute immediate colleagues. Um, but again, you know, I have tried in conversation to raise these issues and speak to people about it, and they just—I don't know if they don't want to look at it. They know what's going on, but I don't know if there's just a reluctance to to look too hard at it potentially because they don't feel they can speak out about it. I don't know. Um, I can't imagine working clinically. I mean, I couldn't have worked clinically. If I had been clinical nursing when COVID kicked off, absolutely no way. I'd have been well at a job long ago. Um, there's just no way that I could have done it. I mean, I wouldn't want a mask for a start. So I probably would have got kicked out. Um, but it just doesn't seem that there's the impetus to, to speak up about it. I mean, for that matter, why aren't the cardiologists? I mean, you have, you know, cardiologists like Mosima Horta that's recently just come out to raise issues about vaccinations and call for a stop to them because of this issue. But why aren't other cardiologists? You know, it's, why aren't other people speaking out about it? I just, I don't know. What about people that have resigned and left the NHS? Um, I, mean, I know that you've approached you've approached many of those what have their reactions been because i mean they they've got no skin in the game anymore they haven't got anything to lose they've resigned they've left the nhs what conversations have you had with them so i spoke to a couple of senior nurses who had taken early retirement and left um, and in the conversation i had conversations with them previously about what was going on and they were kind of all the same vein as me, they kind of knew it wasn't right and that they didn't want any part in it, that's why they went. And when I then said to them, well, you know, why don't you speak up with me? I mean, when I went to Brian Gerrish in 2021 anonymously, I said, you know, somebody else speak up with me, you know, they'll do it anonymously. Nobody needs to know it was you that said anything. Just this instant sort of, no, oh, no, 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 no. And it's like, well, why not? And oh, no, no, I, I mean, I don't really, I didn't really see what happened. And, you know, I, I didn't, I, I mean, I got out of it, I didn't really take part in it. So, you know, just, no, I'm not going to do that. And one of them actually said that they didn't want to do it because of their partner. Um, that there's no way that they would be happy for them to do that. Um, so, you know, I don't necessarily think they would have done it anyway, but that was what they were saying was the reason why they weren't going to. Um, and anybody else that I've tried to speak to and say, look, you should speak up about this. So there's, there's almost this instant recoil of, oh, no, 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 I don't want to do that. No. And when you say why, it's just, oh no, I just don't want to get involved. I don't want to know. Just leave it. doesn't matter. So, you know, and again, maybe, I mean, I think a lot of it is based on, as I mentioned earlier on, that there are so many people in financial difficulties that to be essentially as they would see it commit career suicide um, to speak out to whistleblowers. I mean, whistleblowers are supposed to be protecting the NHS, but we all know that doesn't happen. So, you know, because there's that knowledge, there's that reluctance to speak out for absolute certain. No, and also I was quite shocked um, to, to hear. Well, no, I don't think I was shocked. I was just, I don't actually know what I was. But when you said that you've been receiving communications from NHS Scotland with regards to behavioural nudges and asking, you know, sending you questionnaires about, how you feel the NHS will grow or transform forward. Um, so constantly, constantly, you've all been having these subliminal behavioural nudges. Tell us about the questionnaire that you received. So on our um, intranet, which is only staff side intranet only, 
and there was a request for everybody to complete a questionnaire that came from a company called InnoScot Health. Um, and essentially the whole questionnaire is just about um, innovation in healthcare and do you feel you could become an innovator and what's most important to innovators? But what was really nefarious about it, Debbie, was by the time you'd gotten sort of halfway through, I think it was question nine or ten, there was a question that basically asked you about um, what was it? How do you think um, we should implement the following innovations? And there was a big list of innovations, and everything was digital. Telemedicine, AI was actually written on the questionnaire. Um, there was um, how we use big data, data protection. There was robotics, um, remote monitoring. So you know, for cardiac patients and various things like that, about establishing remote monitoring. Um, immersive technologies was another one which I hadn't even really heard much about, but it essentially means um, augmented reality. So that would be like metaverse kind of stuff, like metaverse consultations, I suppose. So we were asked about this and asked to um, grade it from very important to really can't say on the questionnaire. And it just seems to me that that's, this is the push now in the NHS. I mean, I see it just even locally um, with GP consultations on a near, near me, it's called, which is the video consultation. And now there's a push for pharmacists to do that as well, to reduce the footfall in the community pharmacies. So it seems to me that everything has just been pushed to, to be becoming virtual. I mean, I have heard of instances where there are actual virtual wards in England. I mean, there's none of that here in Scotland yet. But it's quite clear that there's, there's this huge push um, down this really, oh, I don't even know, nefarious digital route. Um, I would just have so many concerns about it. It's just... Yeah, I think you've highlighted it before as well in the column. It's just really concerning. Yeah, we have. We've we've been talking about virtual wards. Uh, we've also uh, there was a report uh, a couple of months ago where nurses were going to be issued with like augmented reality goggles. Um, we've got hospitals that are using electronic wristbands like barcodes so that you're scanned with like an iPad, etc. So, you know, all of this AI <clears throat> augmented reality is definitely an ongoing agenda. And it's something that we've been highlighting for ages that the NHS hospitals, as we know them now, are going to disappear. And, and, and you know, we are going to get launched into this medical metaverse, which we've been speaking to about on the, on the UK column and the, the whole transformation of the NHS. But, you know, I just want to jump back to, to, well, I just want to mention one thing that you've mentioned to me before um, when we've been speaking. And another thing um, which we'll come on to, which is community pharmacists. But before that, during this whole pandemic that's gone on and the lockdowns, most people will know that hospitals have a, a suite of day surgery units so that patients that are going in for a day procedure um, don't have to go into the main ward to be admitted into a main ward and go into a main a main theatre block. Now, what happened to your day theatres <clears throat> when this whole pandemic started? Because they were very, very, it's a very valuable resource having a day <laughs> theatre because you can get so many cases done don't need to be fully admitted. So what happened to your day theatres? So initially, the much like the main surgery um, within the hospital, it was kind of reduced as COVID kicked off because of obviously all the precautions. Um, but by October 2020, they closed the day surgery theatres in our hospital. Um, and subsequently, the staff from there were redeployed to the vaccination centres. Uh, I had been in touch with a consultant um, from the unit around some prescribing documentation for the unit that was going out of date um, on and off over the course of 2021, asking, you know, when, you know, when you open it up, when are we going to get going again with this? No, sorry, we're still shut. No, sorry, we're still shut. Don't know what's going on. Um, and then it starts to transpire. We're still shut because we haven't got the staff, can't get the staff. So a lot of the staff that have been redeployed have left. The ones that have gone and been redeployed to the vaccination centres Obviously not what they wanted to do. It's not what they were trained to do. Um, and many of them had left. So there wasn't enough staff to reopen the day surgery theatres. And even now, um, just a couple of weeks ago, I inquired again and was told that, no, they're, they're still closed and now it's because we really can't get staff. But it transpires that there, there were, during COVID initially anyway, private hospital in Aberdeen, 
and a private company that were picking up um, NHS operations. So even though you couldn't get your operation in the NHS, they would quite swiftly say, but you know, if you're willing to pay, you can go down the road and get it. Um, and it's now transferred as an extra. Two companies have opened up in my area that are operating privately, and they're doing day case surgery for the NHS. And not only that, but a lot of nurses that used to work based within those departments and in the main theatre suites have gone to work for these companies because, well, they're getting paid infinitely more. So the cost now, I, I just can't imagine what the cost must be to the NHS for outsourcing all of these operations that used to be done in-house within the two theatres in the hospital. Um, it just it beggars belief. I mean, there was a whole story about, well, it was getting renovated, it was getting done up as well, so it needed to remain closed for that. But, I mean, you're, we're now at two years. That's two years since it shut its doors. Um, and all I know is that these new private companies are chock-a-block. And because I know nurses that have gone there to work um, because they get paid so much more. So same consultants, same anaesthetists work in there as well that are your NHS ones, but your patients are now going there rather than being operated on in the NHS in buildings belonging to the NHS. But the wider issue with that as well is, I mean, I actually was unfortunate to have injured my shoulder and needed surgery. And again, this was pre-COVID. Um, the waiting lists were quite substantive and my husband at the time of his work had private healthcare insurance. So I actually accessed that and went to the private hospital up here to get my shoulder done. And because I had been a theatre nurse, obviously I was quite curious about the whole setup down there and you know what happened. And, and I knew the anaesthetists, I'd worked for them in the NHS. And I remember at the time, the first thing that struck me about it, Debbie, was the equipment that was being used. Um, I was really quite shocked because it was absolutely the cheapest of the cheap. So all of the stuff that we trialled in the NHS and found not to be either for safety reasons, um, up to scratch, or um, just you know the best product available were being used in the private hospital. So we had um, ECG stickies, electrodes for your ECG, which everybody has during an operation to monitor your heart. And it was the cheap ones that had caused skin rashes where we trialled them in the NHS and rejected them. The Venflons were the cheapest of Venflons. There was a type of Venflon that the NHS again had been asked to trial. Well, we're always trialling things to see if things are cheaper than we can procure them. But um, again, they had been rejected due to safety concerns. And it was those Venflons that were being used in the private hospital. Diathermy pads were the cheapest of cheap. The Floatron boots that are used that uh, pump the calves up and down during surgery so that reduce the risk of DVT, they were the cheapest. And I remember saying to the anaesthetist at the time, What's with this? You know, we we don't use this stuff up at the NHS because of either safety, you know, or because it's not the best product available, but it's here. And I remember the anaesthetist just sort of laughed and said, well, you know, they like to see money in the private sector. And I just thought, how ironic. People think that they're going private to pay for a better service. And I'm not saying that in terms of staff lives, they're potentially not receiving that because it's the same staff that work the NHS. But in terms of products used, I would seriously query that they are receiving a better service. I mean, that, that must cost, you know, a fortune for the NHS because compared to the private sector, it's crazy. It's not just a fortune for the NHS, is it? It is dangerous. I mean, mm. you know, you mentioned their diathermy pads and our viewers and, and listeners might not understand what diathermy pads are, but they're very important. Explain to us what diathermy pads are, Fran. So essentially, whenever you're getting a surgery and there's potential blood loss, they use um, cautery. They essentially burn it. That sounds a bit awful, isn't it? But they cauterize any bleeding to stop the bleeding. And in order to do that, they have to use, obviously, a machine that generates the, the electric charge. And in order to do that, they have to ground the patient. So they have to have a pad on the patient that basically means that the patient doesn't get burned. That's the reason for having the pads. And some of the pads that we had trialled in the NHS um, and rejected, we rejected them because patients were being left with burns or stop from the use of the diaphragm. Um, and, and it was a huge concern to me to see that those particular pads, I mean, I had been in theatres at the time we trialled those ones, were the ones available in the private hospital. And that, that you're right, that, I mean, it really was dangerous. But I mean, the type of surgery I was having, it wasn't, you know, I wasn't probably going to need diathermy anyway, so it wasn't so bad, but it's not the point. You know, it's it's your life in their hands, David. That's the bottom line. 
Yeah, it really is. And, you know, Fran, we've been sitting here and we've been chatting for nearly an hour. And there's a couple more things that I really need to cover with you. Bearing in mind um, to all our viewers and listeners that Fran is actually going back to work after this interview to work in the NHS. So um, we need to, to crack on very quickly and, and just try to cover two more things because I think they're really, really important. One of them is that you've been working very closely with community pharmacists. And we've been talking on uh, the, the UK Column News about the transition that we're seeing from GPs and, and, and the things that GPs would normally do to the things that pharmacists are now being asked to do. And I'm really quite shocked, um, but I want you to tell us what you're seeing the role of a community pharmacist going forward, bearing in mind that this is happening now. You know, this isn't something in six months or a year or two years down the line. This is actually happening now. What responsibilities are community pharmacists being asked to take on? Essentially, for the last two years, there's just been a, a massive outsourcing of what used to be a GP's responsibility has now become a community pharmacy responsibility. So we have a thing in Scotland called Pharmacy First, where um, patients can access the pharmacist to get um, medicines for various conditions. Um, and, you know, there's been a huge expansion in the services that each of the pharmacists are providing privately. Um, so privately now you can go and see about your migraine, your asthma, your menopause, you know, there's just so much. Um, all of the previous um, travel vaccinations that were, you know, some of which are NHS, you qualify for some of them in the NHS and others you might have to pay for depending on where you're going and why. But previously you could go to your GP surgeon, make an appointment and your practice nurse would be the person who administered those travel vaccines. Now that's all community pharmacy. So it's, again, it's another service that the community pharmacists have to upskill and take additional training in, in order to deliver and provide. Um, we're just seeing such huge outsourcing to them. I mean, there's private menopause clinics running, um, you know, um, that are, it's NHS that are covering the costs, but it's, it's private that are doing it because there's just... There's not that service there anymore. You know, everybody laments about how difficult it is to access a GP and, in fact, how difficult it is to get past the receptionist <laughs> because you now you've got to, to detail exactly why you want to see a GP. Um, and going back to what you had mentioned earlier about different people taking over roles, there's an increase in advanced nurse practitioners that are working within GP surgeries, doctors, as you would call them. Um, huge amount of that um, exploding up here because to try and replace the GPs and plug the holes you know, they're being utilised and used. Um, but it's just, you know, the community pharmacists, I spoke to community pharmacists actually just a couple of weeks ago um, because they weren't happy with the whole travel vaccine situation. And they said, you know, I didn't, I didn't become a pharmacist to do this. I can't do my job. I can't check the medicines I need to check because I'm too busy essentially being a GP. Um, and that's not going to get any better um, as services get pulled from the GP and more and more gets outsourced. And, you know, right at the beginning of this, I remember writing to the CEO of Boots the Chemist um, because I was I was worried that they were becoming almost an arm of the state. And then when we were talking previously, Fran, you alerted me to something that I didn't know. Um, and I, I thought was actually referring to, you were referring to Scotland. But since I've checked and it seemed to be it seems to be that this is nationwide. And this is Boots the Chemist now apparently appear to be offering mental health consultations. Yeah. And I, for one, am absolutely horrified because I don't believe we actually know who these consultations are held with. What do you know about what's going on with Boots and mental health consultations? So again, um, you can make an appointment online. Or I don't know if you can do it in-house, but you can certainly do it online to speak to a doctor, not an NHS employed doctor I'm led to believe in terms of Boots, although Lloyd's Pharmacy advertised that their doctors are affiliated with the NHS. And you can take a consultation, one hour consultation, after which if that doctor deems that you are depressed and require an antidepressant, that script will be generated and you can pick it up on your way out. That's basically it. In terms of patient safety, I mean, where do you even start? How does the GP know the patient's been prescribed that? There's no joined up systems. 
you know, there's no, currently there's no way other than the, the, the community pharmacy alert and the GP, which they absolutely should do. But there's no joined up systems to show that that patient has been prescribed that antidepressant. Um, and another big issue with the community pharmacy is providing all of these services privately because you can go on now and, can, and you can get consultations, online consultations with Lloyds and Boots private doctors. But you're paying for the, that prescriptions. Um, and in Scotland, obviously, unlike yourself, Debbie, we don't pay for our prescriptions up here. But if you can't get access to your doctor to, for example, get started on a contraceptive pill or get medicines to help um, if you suffer migraine, and you therefore go private um, with Boots or Lloyds for this consultation, you're paying way over the loads for these medicines. You know, your the markup is absolutely appalling. I mean, they're charging some sort of 25, 30 pounds for a pack of medicines that are £2.75. <laughs> so there's money to be made in this. You know, there's there's no two ways about it. Well, we won't even start at this point on medicines and the MHRA because I know that we're going to have to come back, Fran, for part two on that. But one very simple question that I want to ask you is, do you think the NHS is safe? Let's put it this way, I wouldn't want to use it. I, I wouldn't want my son to use it, my husband, myself, any family member at the minute to use it. And in fact, we didn't register with um, GPs here in the room because I have no intention of accessing any NHS services. And God willing, nothing will happen that will see us cross the threshold for an emergency. Um, that's my answer. And I think that says it all. And, and I have to say that as an NHS trained nurse, um, I feel exactly the same. And I've already had a conversation with my children and my family to say that should anything happen to me, then um, I prefer to stay at home and I don't want to be taken to the NHS. And I think you echo what a lot of people are, are thinking and are worried about. So finally, finally, just to wrap everything up, because like I say, I know that we're going to have to come back for part two because there's just so much more that's going on in Scotland that we need to bring to people's attention. But two messages Fran, um, a message for people watching the public and a message for your colleagues as well, what would you say to both of those groups of people just to finish off? Okay, colleagues, people still working in the NHS, question, you know, just ask the questions. Just challenge. I mean, when we were trained as nurses, Debbie, God knows that's what we were taught to do. We were taught you were the advocate for the patient, the voice for the patient, and that you should always speak up and ask. That just doesn't seem to be happening. There's just blanket compliance across the piece, and it needs to start happening because it could be your granny, your mum, your sister, that, you know, that patient could be a member of your family. So have a real good think about how you would want them to be treated and how you would want someone to speak up for them. Um, it really needs to start happening. It's, it seems to be a lost art in the NHS. And my message, therefore, to my colleagues would be, please start speaking up. Please start questioning anything that you're asked to do that you don't think is right. For the public, to be honest, actually, Derry, for everybody, I think I would say stop outsourcing your health. Stop looking to the NHS and other, other organisations for your health. Take your own responsibility for your health. Take it back. Because there are so many different alternative treatments. And, you know, there is herbal medicine, there's homeopathic remedies. There's just so much out there that can be utilised and used to help keep you healthy and also to help treat disease and symptoms. It doesn't always have to be a pill for every ill. And that's what it's ended up. And, you know, there's this compliance and there's this sort of apathy amongst the public now that no matter what they do there'll be a pill to cure it but there's a consequence to that pill and that pill leads to more pills and then there's even more deterioration in health so I think if there's any one thing I could say to people it's take more responsibility for your own health um, and try and look after yourself more that that would be the, the message I think that's certainly what I've learned anyway baby over especially a hard lesson in the last five years, is that you need to look elsewhere. It's just allopathic medicine is not the right model of medicine for human beings. It's just not. 
no, I quite agree. Allopathic medicine is not where we should be going. And we do all need to be looking at more natural, holistic remedies going future, going, going forward in the future. But Fran, I just want to thank you so much for being brave enough to stand up and, and for having to witness all of this. And I, and I hope that today, by talking to us, that you're able to sleep better tonight because I know that sleeping has been a problem for you because you've had all of this on your shoulders. And I know that we will be coming back and, and speaking to you again. But, you know, for anybody out there that's working within the NHS at the moment um, and is struggling and wants to talk, um, even confidentially, anonymously, please don't hesitate to contact us because we're finding more and more and more people wanting to speak out. And, you know, we need to hear from you. So, Fran, thank you so much. I know that you're going to have to go back to work now, back into the NHS um, again. Um, and I'm just so sorry that you have to, but you'll be your resignation, you haven't got too long left to go so then you can enjoy some time with your family um but thank you and to everybody watching please share this video widely and to those in scotland we're with you every step of the way and we're not going to forget all the stories going on in wales scotland northern ireland all around the uk so if you've got anything that you would like us to know please don't hesitate to get in contact thank you for watching and listening bye bye for now